and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And as usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey. And in this episode, instead of uh, the normal format of interviewing a particular guest, I'm digging through some old episodes we have, uh, since we have about 40 at this point, and uh, kind of remixing them based on topics. So, you know, catching some stuff that might have slipped through the cracks and, uh, and presenting it in a new way. So the theme for this episode will be critical theory and critical race theory in particular. And these are important uh, theories for the study of religion, also for the study of the environment, uh, so certainly for the field of religion ecology. And of course, if you've been paying attention to the news much in this last year or so, uh, 2020, 2021, then you know that uh, critical race theory has been very prominent in the news and uh, is very controversial and largely um, left undefined, or its definitions are very vague or unclear. So uh, I thought it would be helpful to, then to bring together a couple voices that have uh, defined critical theory and critical race theory for us. Uh, and first, we'll have Selena Osuna, the Assistant Director of the Desert Humanities Initiative at Arizona State University. And she'll tell us a little bit about uh, critical theory in general, what it means for philosophy, for environmental humanities. And then we'll pass it off to Tyler Tully, a doctoral candidate in religious studies at the University of Oxford. And he'll tell us about his experience of critical theory and get more specific about critical race theory, which is a little different than critical theory. And he'll explain why for us. So to begin, I'll pass it off to Selena to tell us a little bit about critical theory. So I'm wondering, anytime, you know, I talk to somebody, uh, you know, on this podcast that, that is engaging with critical theory, I'm always like, could you please tell us what's critical theory <laughs> and, uh, and how, how might some of these questions of, you know, gender and race or species, uh, kind of play into what that theory is about, you know, break it down. Cause especially our audience, we have some folks who maybe never really engaged with critical theory on its own terms and they hear it yeah. a little and people kind of think, oh, anything that's critical is critical theory. It's, you know, it's a very specific kind of thing. It is a really, I will say it's a very specific kind of thing. And the more I find myself in circles outside of critical theory as well, you do start to realize, no, there's critical race theory. I have a, a friend and scholar, Jerome Clark, he studies critical Diné theory, right? Which is like of the Navajo people. So just like understanding that in itself, having that giant umbrella is, um, I think it stems from something like scholars were really trying to work hard to think through the lineages of mainly continental philosophy. Um, but I think the work that it has cut out for it now is really understanding where that thought and those lineages can intersect with things like race and culture and identity a bit, a bit more. Um, when I explain critical theory just in a very basic way to anyone who's either like not in the academy or my student, like to my students, I do tend to oversimplify it and go, it's kind of a fancy name for philosophy of like the 20th, 21st century, um, which is a, it's a very, that's a very, very broad and very oversimple explanation. But I think it helps them get past this like critical theory. Um, it sounds like an intense label. I'll just put it that way, right? It's like an intent, you're critical and theory together, it sounds intense. And so somehow philosophy seems more esoteric and approachable in some ways. 
Um, so I do that. But beyond that, I think for me, the critical theory that I try to engage with helps me think through the problems I come up against in my research. And so for me, like I was saying, like multiplicity is a problem. Like, uh, sorry, multiplicity is more of a solution than a problem, but working through the problem of saying the desert um, is something that I, that I do in, in the book. Like I, I intentionally do not, as many times as I can catch it, I'm not saying the desert. And even as somebody who's trying to write that, <laughs> that we should say deserts, like add an S, right? Put an S on there or desert places. Or um, even though I know that, I still catch myself saying the desert. And it's because it's so ingrained in our, in our consciousness, in our, it's like pop culture, everything. I mean, around here in Arizona, people say all the time, like, oh yeah, I was out in the desert this weekend. Or, hey, you want to go out to the desert? And like, we're in we're in a desert, like we're in, and it's funny, right? Because critical theory, one of my favorite things about critical theory and also maybe the most frustrating is the love of language that exists. And so you have like French, German philosophers who are translated, right? So there's the problem, there's always that problem of translation, but they do tend to engage in a very intense way with specific words and wordplay. Wittgenstein was really, um, famous for doing that, Deleuze is famous for doing that. And after you read Deleuze and Guattari and you read, okay, no more either or, right? No more either or, it's gonna be both and. For me, as grad student, that really did something um, because I'm a big believer in simultaneity. I'm a big believer in like possibilities. And so, yeah, okay, it's both and. Like there is this thing, the desert, that is this abstraction, this like homogenous abstraction that's almost anything you want it to be. It can be where you go to Burning Man and do whatever you want and have this liberation, uh, you know, this fun <laughs> drug-fueled liberation. Or um, it can be the void. It can be the wasteland. It can be where these nuclear testing sites uh, find themselves somehow, uh, right, and, and uh, become radioactive. So that abstraction does exist, right, as well as the different deserts that exist. And so when I did move to Arizona, I thought, ah, oh, I'm coming back from Scotland. It's gonna be, it's gonna feel like home. It's the desert. There's mountains, like big horizons, all the all the tick the boxes. And then I got here and it's easily 10 degrees hotter. Um, it like like during the summers, it it's not something you get used to. I mean it's 118 all week is the high, right? This is all week. And I've gotten used to knowing that it just won't cool off until October. Like, just, I just know that now. And that wasn't the case in El Paso. And uh, in terms of saguaros, I had, we don't have saguaros native to El Paso. They're native to the Sonoran Desert. So I got here and it was like, I feel like I was as stunned as anybody else coming here who wasn't from the Sonoran Desert, right? It was just like, whoa, they're real. I'd only seen them on, in films and sometimes in films depicting El Paso. Um, so like trying to understand these like these complications of representation or misrepresentation and and break them down into multiple. And so I find a power in language, you know, as a I've I've chained myself to literature and, and the arts and I, I'm 
I'm happy about that. And I think in literature specifically, we have power of imagination and power of language as well, um, which is what these theorists are working with. And so really trying, how can I embrace that? Okay, let's get rid of the definitive article. We'll not say the desert. It sounds cool. I probably will slip and, stay and say it, you know, as time goes on. But um, I always <laughs> it always reminds me of that, you know, the America song. The 70s song, yeah. <laughs> Desert with a uh, Horse with No Name. Yeah, Been right? Through the Desert on a Horse with been No Name. Been Through the Desert on a Horse with No yeah. Name. And so it's like, you know, that's the desert. And when you picture that, you picture probably dunes, mountains, I don't know. Um, but if I say a desert, you might like be like, well, which one? Right. And so it's, it's a small switch, but but it's not maybe in the long run. It's one of those things that you hope, like most critical theorists, you, you want to coin a a term i guess like an example i could use for the desert abstraction is kind of what timothy morton calls the hyper object mm -hmm. right it's this thing that we can only really grasp at we can only get pieces of and so that's why it is all the things you you can dream it up to be but you'll never fully comprehend right or apprehend if you're whiteheadian um so just like it's it's kind of been a navigation of language to study critical theory and more and more what I'm trying to do with my own scholarship is take what works from that and hope that readers do not have to do too much investigative research that they don't want to do to figure out how I'm using those thoughts. Um, one of one of the more frustrating aspects of critical theory for me has been the gatekeeping that happens. Um, because you do have, you do, I'm sorry, community, but you, there's a lot of gatekeepers in the critical theory world. And, and I get it because you work so hard. There's a lot of people who are dedicated to one thinker, right? Or a couple of thinkers because they were in conversation with each other. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. I think that kind of rigorous engagement is really wonderful. But there is then that danger of you have these thinkers that have whole dictionaries dedicated to themselves. Right. And then you run the risk of not being able to talk to others in other fields. Um, and maybe that's not a concern for some, but I, I really feel like, especially in the environmental humanities, I feel like it's important to to feel like you're going to have an ongoing conversation. This is These are problems that are affecting all of us just in different ways, in different intensities. And so having a kind of forged or, or, or multiple understanding of language vocabulary is really helpful for that, I think. Thanks. All right, wonderful. Thanks so much to Selena Osuna for breaking it down a little bit for us about what critical theory is, its problems and its promises. And now I wanna pass it off to Tyler Tully to tell us about his experience of critical theory and get more specific into the details of what critical race theory is. So I'll pass it along to Tyler. And then of course, another part of this is also um, interest in critical theory. In, in critical theory, um, I think is best done when it is self-reflexive and punches up, mm. right? Like that's the whole point right. is to hold power accountable um, from a position, from a certain positionality from within the academy. And this is a very privileged position in many cases, in most cases, right? This is multiple, multiple, you know, layers of gender and racial and 
um, abled and embodied privilege that, that comes together sometimes with class, sometimes not with class in the academy. But how do we speak from that position um, of, of so much power and privilege to, to, to hold privilege and power accountable? And what does that look like? And so for me, I, I started looking at ways in drawing inspiration from um, friends and, and community members that uh, were actively engaged in other processes of knowledge production that were not involved in the academy, right? Um, and this materializes in many different ways and in many different communities. And that's probably what's so powerful about it is that it's place-based uh, based, and it's always particular to location. And, and one of these um, long-standing phenomenon are anti-colonial, um, which is to say traditional practices of knowledge uh, that occur in native communities in what is now the United States. And um, having grown up in Oklahoma, um, having been descended from both settler dirt farmers that were involved in the land runs there, um, and also from, um, you descended from some of the five civilized tribes there, the Chickasaw Nation and Muskogee Creek Nation um, of Indian Territory, which later became subsumed into the modern state of Oklahoma. Um, I had grown up in, uh, in a place where um, extractive oil economies ran the state and uh, where the tribes were constantly um, in a hegemonic relationship with the state, where on the one hand, they had to work within the existing infrastructures, but they were always outside of it, right? They weren't allowed in. Um, and so uh, drawing upon those experiences and those communities that I come from, um, I started to look at these larger questions of power in a different way. Um, and this has been a, a, a long-standing, lifelong process, right? This is, I didn't have like one moment of epiphany, but um, I'm constantly challenged by that interchange and those different types of um, tensions that develop from where we come from and where we're going and, and um, how do we affect change for the positive uh, from our positionality. Nice. Yeah, <clears throat> I really appreciate that about uh, your work in general. You know, you're dealing with these like very serious issues of like high theory, but it's very grounded in your experience, your, uh, your own communities, the traditions that you kind of intersect with in one way or another. And to me, that's really what scholarship is at its best. Uh, it has to be about that, right? Otherwise, it's just kind of spinning our wheels and whatnot. Right, right, right. And, you know, obviously, uh, recently in you know the United States, critical race theory has kind of become a term I think a lot of people have heard, and maybe mm. they hadn't heard it before. And it's this kind of, uh, you know, bogeyman of like the Trump administration. Mm. And, you know, so I'm curious if you could say a little bit more for people who uh, might do a lot of work with religion, ecology, these kind of things, but might not really know beyond like bumper sticker definitions or something. Mm. Uh, what exactly is critical race theory or how critical theory applies to race and racism? It's an excellent question. And, and what a what a big responsibility to try to answer that. Let me try. <laughs> yeah. and so is, sorry this, in advance. No, because I think this is absolutely relevant to st the study of religion and also any study of ecology, environmental humanities, whether that's in the hard sciences or, or not. Um, I'm in a really interesting position uh, with, you know, one ear in the um, Anglophone like academy and the other um, in the United States. And um, I don't consider my, myself a transatlanticist by any means. Um, just, you know, this poor kid that grew up from Oklahoma, 
Um, but I, I am like just on Twitter, for example, like I see these different overlapping and simultaneous conversations that are happening amongst, you know, um, friends in the UK and then also, uh, you know, friends here in the United States. And this villainization of critical race theory is happening at the same time in both locations. And it's fascinating to watch it happen in real time um, in different ways and with different rhetorics, but always in the same interests of power. And this is what critical theory tries to do. It tries to look at the rhetorics that are being incorporated in the interests of power, right? It, it doesn't assume that knowledge is only neutral and that knowledge doesn't have a politics of its own um, and that it doesn't have a power socially um, to affect different ends, right? So, so when we look at critical race theory and the way that it's developing as a discourse, a divisive discourse, um, on the right in both the United States and in the UK, this is ascending at the exact same time as Brexit and the exact same time as the Trump administration um, and all the special interests that they um, account to and that they account for. Um, so what critical, I, I was so privileged to, to um, study critical race theory um, through the work of Derek Bell first um, and then later through uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and others. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma in an evangelical Christian school uh, where my mom taught. And because she taught there, we received a great scholarship to attend. Um, and this school was obsessed with the um, westward chain of history um, as it expanded uh, with civilization moving west. Um, and that, that um, education gave me a strange familiarity an appreciation of some of our nation's founding documents um, around um, exactly who we are and, and, and what we're trying to accomplish in, in the creation of what became the United States. Now, they had a very particular bent of manifest destiny, and that's the lens through which we read these primary documents. Nevertheless, primary documents they were. When I was introduced to the work of Derek Bell um, and, and Kimberly Crenshaw and others who are um, you know, considered the, the architects of critical race theory, it absolutely made sense to me because I had been familiar with these, um, these other longstanding discourses in the United States that, you know, had a history way back to Plymouth Plantation with um, the, the separatists in New England um, through John Winthrop's City on a Hill to, you know, manifestations that reappeared um, uh, to counter the Carter administration and sort of this long history of the ascent of um, an organized um, religious right in the United States. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw and, and Derek Bell and other critical race theorists are lawyers. And when they explain critical race theory, they're not explaining you know, the, this high and lofty um, uh, metaphysics or cosmology of the world. They're talking about the very real effects of our legal structures, where they came from, why they were created and to what ends they were created, right? So um, I, had a, I had already learned about um, the Whiskey Rebellion, um, for example, which took place um, after the Revolutionary War in the United States. And, and when I learned about, oh, wow, there were all these farmers and low you know, country people who um, were veterans of the, the American Revolution. And, and for all intents and purposes, these were founding fathers of the United States. They were upset that the federal government was 
um, taxing them without representation. Right. And they were upset that um, they were uh, not allowed to sell their wares just like the gentlemen um, settlers uh, who signed the Constitution did. Um, and, you know, we saw through the, the primary sources in, in, in literature at the time that um, the, the fear that the United States had was that um, free slaves and Indians um, would join with these poor whites and that they would turn uh, the tide of hegemonic power that existed in the colonies at the time, or, or rather the burgeoning nation of the United States at the time. Right. Um, and, you know, critical race theory points to episodes like this and they say, look, like if you just read the laws that are created um, federally in response to these things, we can see that um, there's an effective wedge that's driven between um, free blacks, um, between um, poor, unlanded tenant farmers um, who were white. Um, and this sort of forever divided, um, legally speaking, um, any, uh, any real means of, of joining across that racial divide um, to upset the hegemony um, on the frontier. Um, and it's amazing that, that, you know, the critics today who look at, um, I, there's many more examples I could give, but that's one that stands out. Um, the critics today kind of latch onto that and they just, you know, they're not reading these people. They're not interested in reading these people, um, but they are interested in activating, um, you know, certain social groups and powerful interests to uh, do exactly what, you know, critical race theory is pointing out. They are denying um, cross-racial um, lobbying efforts and organizing efforts um, in a way that solidifies power around a particular class of people. And that particular class is not just wealth, it is racial first and foremost. And when we look at the histories of the United States, it's absolutely undeniable. So when we bring this into the study of religion, right, to bring it home finally, um, we have to bring that into conversation, right? Like we, we cannot shy away from these overlapping realities that so define um, not only the way that we produce knowledge, but the questions that we ask, right? Um, and, I, and I think that that's where critical race theory can be very helpful. All right, thanks to Tyler Tully and to Selena Osuna. I hope you found uh, both of those discussions as enlightening as I did. And if you haven't heard their full episodes, you can uh, find links to them uh, in this episode and go back and check them out. And if you have heard those episodes, I hope this remix helped provide a new angle on it to maybe stimulate some more thoughts for you and, and a deeper understanding. So I'll leave it there for now. And we'll be back next week with some more content for you. In the meantime, take care and be well.